Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about emerging professionals. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. And I'm really sorry about my children screaming in the background. Hopefully they'll <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, They're children very do. excited. Uh, they are clearly the emerging professionals of the future. Yes. <laughs> the tiny, <laughs> tiny conservators. Smooth. <laughs> Smooth transition there. I like it. I'm going to keep that in the episode, just so you know. Um, yeah. Let's start with some news. First of all, uh, this is going out two days before Icon's Twitter conference. Basically, get your butt on Twitter and uh, join the conference. It's a completely online format conference. It's accessible to everyone who has internet access. You don't even have to have a Twitter account to look at the papers. More information on Icon's website, basically. Uh, Hopefully, it'll be fantastic. And I'm not saying that because I'm presenting. Honest. Other than that, uh, Icon has said that their triennial conference in 2019 will be in Belfast. They have given us some dates as well. I do believe it was 12th to 14th of June 2019. So, uh, yeah, get saving. Come to Belfast, basically. I hope I can go. I hope I can go. I hope we can go. That would be cool. That would be cool. Go as a team. Team C word with T-shirts. Okay, so today we're doing a little bit of a follow-up episode on our Emerging Professionals one that we did in Season 1, where we had Marie Jordan as a guest host. Um, we talked a lot about the differences in America versus Britain, and what it's like being a student and an emerging professional, and what that means, and what an emerging professional actually is. And I think we settled on its first five, sometimes to ten, years of your professional life since graduation. Yeah, 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 that was, I think that was roughly it. And there's just so much to cover. It bears another, I think a number of the topics we've talked about do, do bear other other episodes, additional episodes, but this one particularly. Yeah, go for uh, it. So I'm feeling very different about this episode, uh, recording this episode than I did recording last time, because I have now finally been working in an actual long term contract job for four months now so I'm I'm no longer at the end of my last contract and waiting for the the next thing to come along and doing interviews and going through that hell so so it's a bit less nerve-wracking yeah it's less nerve-wracking and I'm I'm feeling quite sort of retrospective about it and I'm also very conscious how easy it is to forget how awful it is because it's because yeah, you get sort of caught up in the job that you're doing and you're so you know you're normally learning so many new things you're excited about what you're doing and you get caught up with work and it's easy it's really easy to forget the sort of the gone days of looking at indeed job site and and no, kind of frantically going oh what am I going to do and redoing it's, and redoing your CV it's an interesting one because I, I think it'll be kind of a, a retrospective view from all three of us um because um Christina you you you, you worked with us because we had uh, a guest host instead and you did the interviews of that episode but um yeah. I, th- I think for all of us it's now a retrospective what it's like trying to find your first few jobs and that sort of thing and that's also fine but i absolutely i absolutely agree with you that it's very easy to forget how stressful it feels because you just kind of settle into your new routine and your yeah, new life exactly. very quickly yeah and i think it, it's it's funny because firstly it's 
scary because it means that this has happened to everyone else and everyone in charge of making these decisions is also not really in touch with how awful it is. But also it's scary because I'm not even in a permanent position. My contract is only two years long. And in theory, I've only I've, I've already done nearly a quarter of that. And I still feel very new. So it's, you know, before long, I may well be in the situation again and go, oh, shit, that 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 thing that I neglected to care about is now <laughs> is now my problem again. And now I have to worry about it. So I think it's it's something that bears repeating and it bears a conscious effort to be mindful of of the struggle that we go through when we when we are not employed yeah it's it's an interesting one and it's it's kind of funny how how quickly you you can forget these things because i was right so you know how facebook does the hey do you remember when the thing where (laughs) it gives you that three years ago this was your life and it did that sort of thing for me where it was uh would have been four years ago or something uh and it did like oh four years ago you you were doing this and there was like a status update of me trying to explain to people that i was okay i was living temporarily in uh, like a spare room with a Mongolian woman oh. on the outskirts of Cambridge trying to find I remember that anywhere to live. Um, and I didn't know how long my job would last because it was only promised to be two months and how stressful God. it was to try to move my partner and all of our stuff and find a way to make all of this happen whilst also suddenly working full time and walking an hour because I couldn't afford the bus to from work to the house that or the room when I was now sleeping. And she wouldn't turn on the boiler. Yes, where right? it was yeah. incredibly cold all the time, and I was ill. <laughs> and I was just telling everyone, "I am fine. I'm just finding it a bit stressful at the moment." And I, and I looked at that status message and I thought, "Was that me? That's weird. Did I do that? That was pretty hardcore. Did I really do that?" And uh, it's funny how time just helps you kind of gloss over those bits where it's like yeah. it must have been a really hard time yeah and i don't actually technically remember it which is funny because it's the same thing with job seeking i don't necessarily remember how stressful it is in an acute way i remember filing it under stressful experience <laughs> yeah. so i think it is easy to to kind of forget these things so on the bright side when you do find your first job uh you your the trauma goes away the trauma does you know at least dull down <laughs> So, so there is that, but it's it's interesting that maybe uh, maybe some of the the lack of empathy from employers that we were talking yeah, about last yeah. time could actually stem from the fact that we get over it quite quickly in some ways, and we just kind of forget that this is what it was like, you know, even even for them, etc. It's yeah. a theory. It's a theory. Sorry, I, I, th- I think it's quite interesting because I'm a, I'm a bit further down, I guess, further down this road than either of you yeah i mean i'd 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 label you as well-established name in conservation (laughs) (laughs) yes but it doesn't feel like that and i currently don't have a museum job although i am applying for museum jobs um, and i'm doing some freelance conservation but my day job is not in a museum but i'm also at a stage in my life where i'm not really emerging i'm supposed to be emerged but for all of the other kind of things that are going on in my life in a way it's harder i'm less flexible um so i've got small children um who are at primary school um i've got a house which i realize i'm very fortunate to be in that position of paying a mortgage on the other hand it means that there is 
Um, I, I am kind of tied to a particular geographical area. I can't just kind of up sticks and move even for a two-year contract, potentially. It would be a really big deal for my family. And there is that mortgage and it's got to be paid and so on. And that's why I kind of took the decision to take a job and ideally a job that would give me kind of transferable skills that hopefully I'd be able to sell back to conservation just in order to carry on kind of living so I guess what I mean is at, at, at different stages in your life, sometimes there are kind of different pressures and, and things are not necessarily... So I'm not, I'm not quite sorry. I'm not quite sure what the point of all that rambling is, um, apart from feeling sorry for myself, except to say that in, in some ways it, it, it doesn't always get easier. Um, there, there is this kind of scramble to get yourself established before other things kind of make you unsellable in a way. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm still hopeful I'll be able to find a, a conservation job somewhere that will that I can kind of make work for my family and my situation and my geographical location and so on. But the decision to take up more freelance work, which, as I said in the last episode, is very definitely not my first choice, was, was definitely um, to do with my kind of situation overall. I suppose it's a it's a different it's a different sort of set of problems. It's the same problem, but it's a different different situation and therefore different solutions for it. I think that the emerging professionals as we have defined them in this podcast is the benefit of a large not that a large, a large number of them have is that they are very mobile or that they have to make themselves very mobile because of the situation and i feel in a way that this this sort of problem comes under like we could do a whole extra topic additional topic on issues of being essentially working mothers with oh yeah you know <laughs> that have had to yeah, you to made the decision to have kids and then because of that it then limits further what we can achieve as sort of but I, conservatives. Yeah, but I guess the point career is movements. You, you're not alone in that, Christina. There are loads of our listeners who will know exactly how that feels and they'll have exactly the same struggle. So, I mean, I, this is this is a wide, no, wider no, no, topic. I know. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making any kind of great claim to... No, no, of course uh, not. <laughs> ...uniqueness or anything. Although I will say, and again, this is completely anecdotal, that I think there are fewer conservators with children, just in my own experience, than there are kind of in the general population or in other areas of work i think and i'd be really interested to know why that is well that i would be whether I would it's love people feel they're all kind of cared out <laughs> caring for objects i would so love to, to see home. some statistics on that because yeah really well so like know, i said it's anecdotal yeah, yeah, because I, I, I feel like, oh, I don't know, because I, I, have, I have conservative friends, um, and this brings me on to another topic, actually, uh, who, who do have children now and they feel like they've stopped being conservatives because they're not currently working at it. And this kind of leads me on to something called imposter syndrome, where yeah. it's uh, people feel like they can't call themselves a conservator if they're not actually working every single day full time with it, for example. Or, you know, you set uh, these imaginary stages uh, because it is ultimately all in your head about when you can call yourself a conservator. Is it when you only when you have a full time permanent job in it? Is it only when you do so many hours of bench work? Is it only when you have a steady flow of work? And this is something that ties into the freelancer episode that we just had as well, where I've certainly talked to freelancers in the past who are like, yeah, but, you know, it's it's not my only source of income. So I don't say I'm a conservative necessarily. You know, I say I'm, I'm, God, I can't even think of a normal work now. I'm, I'm a... <laughs> a 
accountant. That's unlikely. <laughs> yeah, that's teacher. Unlikely. That, that's, a, that's unlikely. But I'm an accountant, but I'm also a freelance conservative. So it's kind of like, mm. but it's it, it becomes, it, it's like they don't want to say, oh, I'm a conservative because I don't do it all of the time. And I just think this is an interesting part of our, our thinking, really, where it's what's our what's our definition of how, how much conservative do you have to be to be a conservative? And also perhaps it's a thing of what's what's our picture of what success is for example where it's like do we all aim to have the the full-time permanent job or is it freelancers who set up their own studio maybe that's their actual bag that's what they want to do as opposed to that's what they're forced to do so i guess we all have different goals in conservation and we tend to have an assumption that maybe we're all after the permanent british museum job which we're not yeah, and goals in life as well because I know that a lot of a lot of people's because a large number of us are women um <clears throat> and a large number of those women probably want to have children. The goal in getting the permanent job may well be to secure maternity leave prospects and to be able to return to conservation after they've had children. And it's interesting that Obviously, this brings up a whole set of problems. Um, I, th- I think the thing I, I was really interested by was this thing about when can you call yourself a conservator? Because this is something I've I've struggled with. I'm an accredited uh, conservator. I'm accredited by ICON, yeah. and in order to remain accredited, you need to um, show a commitment to CPD and so on. And it's hard to demonstrate that if you're not working full time in conservation you have to be a bit more kind of creative about uh, the kind of experiences that you go after and the kind of ways that you show that you're still learning and developing as a conservation professional and so on so that's that's kind of immediately more difficult and i've 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 kind of wondered that you know am i still a conservator or am i just like 20 percent a conservator at the moment um or whatever and it and, and i don't know i'd be interested to know whether you think that you are a conservator once you're a conservator you're always a conservator even if you don't happen to be practicing at the moment or whether being a conservator is something you do rather than something you are if that makes sense i oh okay so this is this is an interesting one because i think you're a conservator as long as you haven't said i'm done with conservation like i think it's you draw a line in the sand I think that's when people stop being conservators because I, I kind of because if if you think about all like the I don't, I don't know conservators who are in management positions and they don't necessarily do a lot of bench work or people who do only preventive conservation who don't really touch an object I mean they're still conservators and I, I guess I guess my uh, but I don't think anybody would I don't think anybody would say that preventive conservation is not no exactly unless they were taking an extraordinarily narrow definition of conservation but I'm talking about people who are not working in conservation in no, but it's about training uh, very much of the time, or even at all. But it's about training and and um, attitudes towards problems and attitudes towards ways that things behave and materials behave. So if you were, even if you'd said, "I'm not going to work in conservation anymore, but I'm going to this to do this collections management job," you'd still be a conservator doing a collections management job because you would still be looking at objects with the with an eye to conservation. Potentially. Yeah, see, that's. But I, I guess it does have this element that you touched on, Christina, which is continuation. Do you still think in as a conservator? I guess is, do, do you still uh, do, do, you, do you still do you still use that side of your skill 
um, even if it might not be directly applicable to what you do. Oh, it's interesting. I, I'm really torn now. I thought it was a clear cut thing. And then it turns out I don't know what my opinion is. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, every every two weeks I sit down with you guys and talk about conservation and you haven't checked me off the show yet for not doing enough conservation in the rest of my life. So um, you are most definitely I mean, a conservator, Christina. <laughs> I think yeah we I think we could cover this particularly in the in the if we do an episode on accreditation which is on the magic list of yes. subjects the yeah. it's extremely difficult to be accredited in many ways and it is considered for emerging professionals a really genuinely specific goal particularly because it's on a lot of job applications so to be at that point you're most certainly a conservator it won't just sort of go away your experience and your training and your your world view won't just disappear because you know you're having a, a dry spell as it were <laughs> you know it's it's, it's no yeah. but but the commitment that you're asked to make to cpd does recognize that you need to carry on developing you need to carry on your professional and personal development as a conservator um, if you're to be called a conservator, certainly if you're to remain as an accredited conservator. And so, you know, it, it's it, it's not a stagnant... You, you can't just kind of stagnate like that. You can't just say, well, I, I did my conservation degree 20 years ago and I haven't practised yeah, no, since. Okay, but, yeah, I, no, I, um, I, 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 to, I totally see your point. I do I do see your point. Oh, it's... it's, it's this is possibly brings up a topic. <laughs> Sorry, this, this brings up a topic that um, I think is really important for access to attendance to further training and cpd um because obviously it's something that we all want to do yeah we even if we're not in the position to or it's not our priority to attend additional specific training we see these things advertised and we think oh wow that looks amazing you know feather conservation that looks amazing this extremely specific type of dyeing that looks really interesting oh that kind of dyeing right yeah sorry yeah (laughs) (laughs) rather than the morbid kind of dying yeah yeah Um, sorry (laughs) literally morbid kind of dying um yeah it's it's something that we all find interesting and all aspire to do so i suppose potentially a a solution to both problems such as yours christina and many other similar um and the emerging professional early career conservator problem is access to training potentially would do you how do we feel about uh, that as a as a solution because i have a couple of thoughts about that in fact oh a training is vital we have to say that training is vital and continued learning is vital to conservation way of life that's just kind of what it is so i guess that it doesn't matter if you're established or emerging you do need to keep going and you need to keep keep absorbing new knowledge and stuff like that I guess for emerging professionals, the challenge there would usually be money, usually getting to these things. Uh, Sometimes, if you're really lucky, you'll see a course that does subsidise places for new or unemployed members of the profession. Oh, right. And sometimes you will see that uh, they will even have a free place uh, that's usually shared between something like volunteers and uh, people who 
are unwaged, for example. It's rare, but God, I wish you could see it more. I do because... have a gripe about that, actually. Yeah. Um, that one of the, the things I wanted to say is that it's though there are loads of training, op- um, excuse me, loads of funding opportunities to apply for, most of these training courses have really, really low numbers or at least limited numbers. So once you've actually gone through the process, you've seen what you want to do, you've gone through the process of winning funding for it, been successful. By the time all of that has gone past, it's probably been a month or two weeks or something or more. (laughs) And then all the places are gone. And so that, I mean, that's not just early career conservators. That's, I mean, any low income conservation situation. Yeah. Potentially, Christina, if you were, if you wanted to go on training and you didn't have the, if you were working on, uh, working with freelance work and you didn't have the steady income, you would also be in the situation of not being able yeah. to get onto places of training that you wanted or needed simply because the funding. Yeah, so I've I've been in the position where I've just decided, well, I want to go on this course, whatever, just booked the place and then tried to sort out the funding retrospectively. But obviously that's quite high risk um, if, you, if you think you're not going to get yeah, the it's, funding. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, sometimes you can do that. And sometimes it might be that an organiser is willing to give you a bit of extra time, for example. That's what I did uh, when I went to a conference recently because basically they wanted full payment for the conference before I'd gotten paid that month. (laughs) So I said, could I have another three days so I can be paid? I mean, I actually had grant funding for it, except I get grant funding retrospectively once I've been and I've proved that I've been. So, I mean, that didn't help me at the time. I still needed to make rent and pay for a conference, which was a tricky one. Uh, ended up having to borrow money that that month to make rent. So, I mean, that's, I'd love that. that's yeah. the kind of situation I'm in, despite having a permanent job, for example. So, you know, <laughs> uh, ah, good old emerging professionals. Um, but, I mean, sometimes people, will, you can reason with them and say, could I have a bit of extra time or I'm applying for a grant? Could I... Just have a couple of extra weeks. I know it's it's not fun for you, but could you could you maybe? So it's always worth having that conversation with people who are organising these events. It's not always possible and they won't always help you, but always try. I think that's the thing, right? Where definitely give it a go because sometimes if you explain a situation, then people can be surprisingly compassionate. Yeah. Uh, are there also, um, something I've just thought of, um, are there also ways to find out about training that is free? So I, I a lot of the training opportunities that I see is through being an ICON member, mm. but I only became an icon member again once I got this job because it was it's too expensive as yeah. an, an outlet just when you're unemployed. Yeah. Do they advertise training courses on Twitter, for example? Is this sort of information available for free or do you sort of have to have signed up to pay that cost to begin with? Because I can imagine that being quite a problem if you oh, if you don't no. if you can't justify the cost. So um I can't it, it depends on which group is doing the running of the course, etc. But quite a lot of time ICON will have a member and a non member fee, which means that it will be advertised somewhere. But it might be okay. that you have to be lucky enough to follow a specific Twitter account yeah. because maybe it won't come up on Icon's official one, for example, because they all have different people doing the social media. Uh, each uh, specialist group tends to have a dedicated, for example, committee member um, who does social media for them and they don't necessarily tie in uh, with Icon's social media. So it's it does get advertised and you can find the information, but it's 
it's probably where networking is good and it's good if people put the word out there and retweet things for example and make it a bit more broadly available because sometimes it can be tricky finding these opportunities also sometimes opportunities will come up through regional networks and that sort of thing which is something that isn't necessarily icon based but it's still run by conservators for example uh, so I'm thinking of things like uh, share museums network and that sort of thing so sometimes something non-icon related will also come up that's relevant to conservators not to mention there are things like free webinars and stuff uh, mainly in America to be honest um, where you can sometimes pick up extra skills and knowledge and that sort of thing now it's not the same thing as going to a three-day conference and it's not the same thing as going to a physical workshop where you get to take away a little amazing kit uh, and that sort of thing that's not the same thing at all but there are thrifty ways of finding some training out there and they still count that's still adding to your knowledge that's still adding to who you are and the you know weaponized skills that you have in the battle for work uh you know it, that's that's still completely valid jenny you are the you are the the queen of budget training i think you've you've, you've managed an awful <laughs> lot yourself of even whilst you were unable to find to to secure your conservation it job is. i think it, you were you were able to continue your cpd which is a huge struggle i wasn't i i think i just neglected all training until until the point of being able to you know say where i was going to be i mean i'm I'm very impressed. I think we can use you as an... Everyone can use you as an example of... Am I now a motivational speaker for the yeah. poor consent? <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that. Can I just make the case that CPD doesn't have to mean going to conferences no, and of doing formal training courses also? And there are lots of other ways, professional development activities you can do that don't actually cost anything, but that count as CPD. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I absolutely agree. Similarly, you can go and shadow someone for a day or just go and hang out in someone else's lab for a day and talk to them about particular um, technique or particular materials they've been working on or that kind of thing. So, so yeah, just stay engaged, yeah, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, really good, that's a really good point, actually. The, the building relationships through conservation um, in order to continue professional development. And I really like the idea of spending time in somebody else's lab with them and seeing how they work. I suppose it, it may be difficult for the early career conservator to maybe blag that one um if, if <laughs> mm. you've if you've not if you're basically just out of university and you don't have a name and you don't know anyone it might be a bit more of a struggle to say hi uh just you know person ask. can i well exactly no, that, absolutely just ask. definitely ask. but seriously I you 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 literally have nothing to lose by asking yeah. um and loads of people are really happy to share what they know and, and are really pleased that someone else is taking an interest um and i think most people would happily give you a bit of their time okay so, so maybe maybe that's the the takeaway for the don't be shy yeah the emerging mm. professional here that you know uh give it a go don't be ask, scared ask people questions be be bold give it a go ask the question i think um Net networking has got quite a kind of bad name <laughs> in that people it's scary i think often have this image yeah exactly either that it's scary or that there's something a bit kind of um pushy or creepy about it you know that there's sort of people who are social climbers and will kind of just climb on top of each other to <laughs> on top of everyone else in order to try and get connected with important senior people and so on and and 
And I think a lot of people are kind of suspicious of the whole concept of networking, but it is basically just connecting with people and and getting to know more people. And it might be useful, it might not, but at the end of the day, you know more people. And that's a good thing in itself. And you never know when it might be useful. Yeah, that's true. And it, it's, it doesn't have to just be conservatives if you're somewhere you know just talk talk to people if if it's if it's within your level of comfort or if you can push yourself a bit outside of your comfort zone and talk to people then it will in some way be useful uh it's really nice and and you can do what i do which is hoard business cards and put, the, <laughs> put them in a nice folder and occasionally flip through them and go oh this person i can ask them something when when you're next stuck for stuck for some advice or something similar yeah n- and consider joining something like linkedin and trying to find people on there as well um and it might seem a bit kind of but so that's um i think some really good advice there um from different perspectives of basically having confidence being brave and embracing the position that you're in to move forwards and to uh make connections what other what other device advice do we do we have around the table for early career and emerging professional conservators i say that because i see written down possibly interviews and i'm trying to make a segue (laughs) (laughs) come on guys (laughs) well Um, i i would say make use of every skill you have and don't assume that they're not useful so don't don't kind of write things off because you think it's not what you do 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 take other opportunities as well and if you've got other skills that you think would be useful then make the most of it because there may be a way to use those in a conservation context which would give you um extra opportunities to get work basically i suppose that's the thing about conservation isn't it that we we've basically got to be able to wear as many hats as we can at the same time and and fulfill as many roles as we can and do those odd jobs sometimes it's a tower of hats topped off with a hard hat (laughs) precariously bad and a belly dancing costume underneath potentially though interestingly that's never come up not even when you have to shimmy down a really small corridor i don't know well i would say (laughs) i would say uh probably general body awareness in that situation is quite good So I have, uh, it's not advice and it's not a whinge, but it is a call, a call to employers, funders, uh, more senior later career conservators that may potentially have plans uh, or the potential to make, uh, to influence people and plans. I feel what we need in the the problem of emerging problem emerging of emerging professionals <laughs> is if we're going to have short term project contracts that are essentially created in order to do a job then we need those to be essentially self aware enough to also include the core things that people need in need to build on in their first jobs. So I'm thinking basically project jobs that also allows people to do all the other things like work on databases and do IPM and check environmental conditions and, you know, potentially do photography and other lab-based non-bench work type things. What do you think about that idea? I also try to give someone a well-rounded experience. Yeah, so basically, if you know that you're going to be employing someone for 
three and a half months to put one box here to carry one box from A to B 200 times. (laughs) Or that doesn't sound like very many, does it, actually, on the scale of it? 100,000 times. (laughs) Then potentially it would be a very, very valuable thing for the employer to say, okay, well, we're making this person, we're going to be employing somebody to do this. They will likely be early career, so let's provide them with different opportunities and just accept that training will come hand hand in hand with this. And I understand that this is probably the case with quite a lot of things just as it just happens because you can get people to do all sorts of things because everyone's in the same boat. Essentially, we're all pulling together with running a museum or taking care of a museum collections care. But I suppose that in my experience, I've found I can be working for a number of months or I have been working in the past for a number of months and then I get to the end of it and realise well, I'm damn good at this and that's it. And in the in this uh, age of no funding and high high uh, competitive job markets, the ra- well, the, ra- the well-rounded is definitely the most favoured, I'd say. Hmm. So I guess this is possibly a good time to have our interview because I, I was quite keen to talk to some people who are on the other side of this, people who are the responsible for employing early career conservators and um, hosting internships and so on. So uh, listen to this and see what you think. Okay, I'm Julie Dawson. I'm Head of Conservation in the Fitzwilliam Museum. And I'm Edward Cheese. I'm Conservator of Manuscripts and Printed Books at the Fitzwilliam. So uh, this is the sort of follow-up episode on emerging professionals. What did you think of the first episode? I wasn't terribly surprised. Um, I think it's it's a very hard world to get into. I think mm-hmm. jobs are becoming fewer and further between, and generally the short-term contracting is a problem. I think not only from the point of view of the people who want the jobs, but the people who are giving the jobs or offering the jobs. I think a lot of employers are actually being terribly frustrated by the fact that there isn't more opportunity to give longer-term contracts or full-time positions. Mm-hmm. That were wonderful. I don't think anybody really wants to screw everybody for all their worth and throw away the skin afterwards. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not that business. And I think, I think it's nice just to make that point that actually... This is this has come about um, for bigger economic and political reasons. But I think we could also we could see that it can come across like that, and particularly if people feel that in some way they've been treated badly or or disrespectfully, let's say, in the whole application and interviewing process for jobs, it can seem that they do. You know, that they I, do think, I don't think there's really any excuse for that. I think no. it's just common decency to communicate with people, even a short formal reply is <coughs> fine. Mm. It's just just having that human contact is very important. You've, do you have any advice you would give people approaching interviews? Well, I think um, being very straightforward, keep, uh, don't go on too long in your application, is yeah. is, um, <laughs> is the obvious one. I'm sure people get that advice, but they don't always follow it. <laughs> also, I think being honest about things, don't try to uh, fudge the fact that you've probably had gaps Mm. Um, when you haven't been working or whatever because people can see that and it's much better actually just to say what you were doing it's not you're not necessarily going to be judged on that because we understand that that's that's the way of the world 
actually yeah. these days. I think it's very important. It sounds crass and hackneyed, but be yourself. And before you even get to the interview process, make sure you're a good fit for that job. You may be desperate for work, but if you're really having to force yourself into a shape that you're not, it's not going to be a happy experience. Wait for the right thing to come along. And it's terribly difficult and it sounds terribly self-satisfied of me to sit here having a full-time job. But yes, it, it was hard to get in. The right thing will come along. And if you want it hard enough, you will get there. It's waiting for the right thing. And then to follow what Julie was saying about not covering things up, I'm not interested in having the right answer in an interview. I'm very suspicious of the textbook perfect response. It's boring. <laughs> yep. It makes me fall asleep. I'm interested by somebody who has ideas and can back them up. I want to know why. What, what really sticks out in an interview is the person you remember because you had a really interesting conversation. You've got a very, very short time, but if you've had yes. three and a half minutes of a conversation that you're remembering next week and even perhaps other conversations I've had in interviews, some bad, some very good, which I remember for years afterwards. The, the new idea, the new way of looking at something yeah. that, just, that just livens things up a bit. I want to know why. More broadly speaking, what are the things that you would say are real no-nos in interviews? Um, Disor- what, what Disor- really puts you off a Disorganisation yeah. is yeah. The, the worst one. As somebody who, who has not prepared well enough has not actually read or listened to what you're asking them. There is not time for muddling around and disorganisation shows immediately that you're not calm, that you haven't been very clear, that you can't think. That actually comes back to the portfolio as well because what I mean what we always do is we we, we start interviews but you know to try to put people at their ease a bit by asking them about their experience and then usually doing things like something like just asking them to show us talk through one thing in their portfolio and when people start putting a large you know group of folders on the table and producing <laughs> full conservation reports that's not going to work. The interview panel hasn't got time and they're trying to listen to what you're saying and people need it to be something very immediate. And I think you uh, have to think about that. You have to think about it, not from your point of view as the person presenting the work, but actually how it's going to be received, what the mindset is of the people who are actually interviewing you and the, the approach and the fact that they really don't have very much time. And if they ask you for one object, it's one object. Yes. <laughs> and, and choose carefully. Choose carefully. Very, very carefully. It doesn't yeah. have to be immensely complex, but you have to know it back to front and you have to be able to present it well. So when somebody says, what adhesive did you use for this? You, you know, so absolutely. Like, oh, well, let me just look yeah. that up. Yeah. Or whatever. You yeah. know it. Yeah. You yeah. know it without having to even think about it. Is it best to choose the sort of flashy or singing or dancing kind of project that shows a wide variety of skills? Or is it better to choose something where you came up against a really tricky problem and found a good solution or something yeah. that raises interesting ethical issues? Or I don't mind what you bring. You can bring me a matchbox which yeah. you've repaired, but... Tell me why that's interesting. Make yeah, it exactly. interesting. Yeah. If you can make it interested, I'm there to be interested. I'm trying to get a feeling for you, your work. I think the quality of the photographs is actually rather important as well. It can be things as simple as, oh, that's not a very straight scale in that photograph, or half of this is in shadow. or <laughs> And it's that attention to detail, because obviously that's absolutely critical for any conservator that needs to come across immediately again it's the it's the it's the evidence of the clear thinking the calmness yeah. the the professional approach again all, all these little details show the sorts of things 
It's not not just in the big big questions. What about including other things in your portfolio? So where people have been involved in things that aren't directly treatment or collections mm. related. Mm. So long as it's focused. If if you can give me a very good reason for putting that in your portfolio, great. That's wonderful. It's when it's the sort of rag bag at the end because the third project you couldn't really find something, so I'm putting in half a project here. It's possible, but you need to do a lot of work for it. You're making it harder for yourself in a way, but obviously mm. if you have a very something very strong to sell, then actually, uh, it, yeah, it could be beneficial. I think on, on that note, also have all your antennae as an interviewee going all the time and read people. Yes. Make a habit of looking at their expressions. They'll, their expressions will tell you. They may be nodding, but if their eyes are glass, <laughs> shut up quickly, yes. round it off. Do not carry on longer than... If, if it's interesting and they're really engaged, fine, talk, and they'll stop you when, when they need to. Mm. But don't push it. Yeah, yes. I think, yeah, learning learning body language is quite important, actually, being interviewed, it? You need to be able to... You don't need words to know that somebody is, stand. is not, mm. not following anymore. If you can't deal with people and get along with people, it's going to be very difficult. Yes, you've got to be a technically skilled person, but yeah. you've also got to have people skills as well. I, I certainly think that's true with interviewing. You, you know, you get to the end of it and you think, well, these I don't know, three people were, were all actually very good technically, but which of them is actually going to fit in? Mm. Which of them can we actually work with, you know, in the long term? And it is really, it is really important. I mean, of course, the converse is true in that the interviewees are sort of interviewing they you. Certainly are. They should as be, well. yes. and, uh, yeah. If alarm bells are ringing, yeah. don't take the job. God, yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yes, yeah. yes. It's it's, um, it's it's actually I find even more stressful interviewing yes. than being interviewed because I feel such a responsibility yeah. to allow people <laughs> to give of their best and also yeah. to present um, a good but realistic face of the institution the department yeah you always feel that you are sort of in a sense being judged as well mm. uh, don't think it's all on one side when you're being interviewed this hurts you Just more say. than it hurts yeah well i wouldn't go quite that far actually christine but but also i think the other thing you know, thinking about our responsibilities towards emerging mm. conservatives we have to understand and accept that there is a limit to what they can uh, learn in terms of what we need through their education mm. or even through their internships yeah. however pressured the environment is that we're working in it is our job to actually give them opportunities we can't expect people to arrive with those things intact obviously it's great if they do but you well, we should never ever expect it no. um, i think that's that's a really important part of our job again it, is, it sounds corny but it's it's looking for potential as much as anything and again this is yeah. why i come back to this wanting to know why What's your thinking behind that? As soon as you've got a, perhaps an inkling of the way somebody thinks, some the way they approach problem solving, the way they approach a question, <clears throat> you get the idea that mm, possibly I could work with this. There's room for development here. That the worst thing to say possibly is very definite right answer, and that's all I'm giving you. Because quite likely, if if I get to that stage in an interview, particularly in a practical test, which I think is essential in a conservation interview, I'm likely to. If you say one thing about a treatment, I'll take the other course yeah. mm-hmm. simply for the sake of pushing you to see. It's not being cruel, it's just wanting to know. It's, it's also, I think, things like practical tests. What you, as the person being interviewed, should be asking is, well, 
what is it? What's the, what's the function of this object? What is it you want to do with it? Why are you asking me to conserve this? It's not that you you know you've got to get beyond. This is the way I was taught to treat things like this. The first thing is the context, and. And if you can actually give the impression that you understand that and you can ask those questions, you need to start by asking intelligent questions back. Nobody minds asking questions. That's a good sign. Mm. It's when they're intelligent questions, you get very high scores. It's when they're stupid questions that you think, (laughs) oh, dear. Yes, when people say, I have to go, I would have to go away and do some research about that. Yeah, right. Okay, but what... Now, what what are your questions? What are your questions? Yeah. What is it you need to know about this object? Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't know anything about it. I want to know how you would approach finding yes. out about it. I think the practical element is always one of the more mm. nerve wracking yes. parts of an interview. Firstly, what makes a good test object? And then what are you looking for in the person who's engaging with that object in the interview? I generally choose something for which there is no right answer that Half the conservation world and curatorial world will be appalled if you do, and half will be appalled if you don't do something with it. That That's good, because nobody knows. There is no right answer. This is the point. I want you to talk about these dilemmas. And then cut it. the really good candidates come up with a way of saying, well, I've seen all that. I see there's these two radically different options, two radically different sides of the argument. But I think in this case, with the information I've asked um, from you, the, the the context, the way you're going to use it, I think I would approach it this way, at which point you can then start to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Mm. Don't you think that you know, this might be possible? Or what do you think about this? Or don't you think you're going to upset half the world? And how are you going to deal with that? Just, again, getting the, getting the conversation going. Yeah. It's really important. I think also um, the way people actually even approach the objects to start with. I mean, not just um, in terms of handling... But what are they looking for, actually? What are they looking at? Uh, even again, even if they don't know what all the materials are that are in that object, you can often see the processes that are going see through. The yeah. yeah. Um, and again, the the, uh, the the questions that they ask you. Silence is not a problem, so long as you're using it properly. And again, thinking through things, coming up with the questions you want to ask. We would try to have, say, one object that everybody would need to look at because we want to sort of compare how people Mm -hmm. um, but then you need to have a range of other other things so that people can choose something that they're more comfortable with perhaps I would agree entirely with that but also don't be scared of finding it a tough interview if you've had a tough interview Mm. somebody's pushing you because they know you can be pushed and they think Mm. that you've got potential if you get to that well that's very nice you know thank you um, we'll no way. It. It's not <laughs> yeah. a terribly good result. Yeah. So we want to put you at your ease, but we also want you to be able to show what you can do. Do you choose trick objects? Maybe this is an unfair question. But I, I, I personally don't like trick things. I, there's not time, and I, I'm not in the business of catching people out. I give things that have what I think are interesting possibilities in them. If you mm. can spot them, great. <clears throat> You're not going to spot everything, probably nobody is but it's it's finding out and sort of investigating and showing your way through there may be things that you hope people will pick up on mm-hmm. but i don't think you i don't think you should ever go in into into the interview as the interviewer thinking there's a right answer here mm-hmm. what you want is actually that somebody produces an interesting and thoughtful answer and it may not at all be the one you were expecting but actually that's you know that's valid and that's good and if people don't know what they're looking at 
that's I, I can tell them what it is later. You know? Yes, <laughs> they don't need. They don't need yeah. to know that. I need to know that they're looking at it in the mm. in the right sort of way to get to to get there. But at the end, when you say, "Do you have any questions?" Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are good things for interviewees to ask, um, and what are bad things? I think uh, it's if there is some aspect of the job description that you feel hasn't been covered, that's really important. You know, if you want to know, for example, what scope would there be for me to do a bit of research mm-hmm. or um, I'm particularly interested in developing whatever, then, you know, I, I think, or you want to know more information about the way the institution works or the way the team works. It's It's trying to pick up on those sorts of aspects it's a very difficult one I never know I've never known in interviews that I've been the interviewee what to ask Mm. so usually usually it's it's a matter of something has struck me on the tour round yeah and okay so I've I've not seen where where you keep your materials just that sort of thing you know just to make sure but I think also at the end of an interview people are feeling a bit sort of wrung out (laughs) it's so it's so it's okay I think not to have a, a super clever question prepared. It That's, really doesn't matter. Um, as you said, one of the things you often ask for is that people are either accredited or working mm. towards yeah. accreditation. But sometimes that would mean giving them opportunities and experience that isn't directly related to their work. Yes. So how do you as employers balance those different needs? Well, again, I think we have a duty to try to do that. It has to be done within the, obviously within the context. But I think the thing is to, to talk to people about the sorts of experiences or the sorts of projects which they feel they need and see how it's actually possible to bring particular elements um, into a project. So if they feel that they would like to have a little bit more, I don't know, you know public engagement or something like that, then there are usually ways that you can actually work that in to give people those opportunities. I think it's 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 possible, but it's rather more difficult in the private sector when you've yeah. actually got to bring sure that money true. per hour. Again, it's it's a matter of, I think, being very clear with people, saying, well, yes, of course, we want to support you, but also realising from the employee's side that this isn't college anymore. This is not just put on for me. This, this There is actually a job to be done. Mm-hmm. And when both sides understand fully where they're coming from and don't have unrealistic expectations then it can work really well is this something you feel is more difficult given that there's a trend towards people being employed for short-term contracts and often for very specific projects Mm -hmm. and it's quite hard possibly for the employers to justify letting them go off on a laser cleaning course because that's something they're interested Mm. in when the employer is not going to reap the benefits of that. I mean, I suppose, how altruistic are you (laughs) feeling as employers? (laughs) That is hard. Um, And I suppose the only thing I would say is that you you have to try and be creative about that. And you also have to, to look at what... You know, what are the broader benefits, I suppose? If somebody does go off to do something very specific, well, what are the benefits to everybody else? Can they actually come back and actually do something productive with that in terms even of just um, doing a sort of dissemination to, to, to other people in the group? And then sometimes, yeah, it's just not possible. There's just too much pressure and you just have to get on with it, I'm afraid. Um, I think it's very important as well. I've, I've noticed in um, some circumstances and amongst um, students as well 
the idea that gaining experience, that training, that development can only happen in a course which has development or training on it. Mm. If you've got a good workshop going and there's a good good dialogue, there's good understanding of where people want to get, both from the manager's point of view and from the idea of the supervised person, where they want to get, and you can start to manage that, that that can work really well. Don't, don't ever underestimate the, the benefit of just doing projects. It's... It's all good experience if you approach it in the right way. If you approach it as drudgery and the fact that you're not going on the latest £6,000 course, well, you're going to find everything very difficult. Conservators at the beginning of their career are often very, very much slower Mm. than conservators with a few years' Mm. experience. It takes a while to build up both the speed and the confidence to be able to work at that kind of speed. Is that a disincentive to employing? new conservators. I don't actually see it like that. I think as an employer, you put your mind, yourself in the mindset of thinking, well, who do we need to do this job? Can a, can a new entrant do it? If they can't, if it's if it really is an advanced job, well, make it clear that it's not really suitable for new entrants, get somebody who can do it. But if they can, yes, you, you absolutely take into consideration that they're going to need support, they're going to need time, they're going to need space, and they're going to need a lot of confidence building. And you work with that, and actually, as a decent human being and a manager, you decide quietly that you'll probably take on rather more for the next 18 months, two years, while they're building up that speed and confidence than you would otherwise. That's, yes, people have people have done it for for us, for, our, for all of us in this room. Um, I would be appalled if anybody would think I wouldn't do it for them, if they've got the, the drive to, to make the make real progress and, and really develop. So any final advice for emerging professionals? I think don't don't be scared of who you are, what you think, but have a think about why why you want to do things, why, 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 always and and be able to discuss that openly and clearly. Mm. Julie Dawson and Edward Cheese, thank you very much for talking to the C Word. Thank you. I found that really comprehensive advice. Um, I'm surprised Mm. at how much thought goes into it. And I, I've done interviewing before, and I've so I've been on both sides of the table. And I thought I knew what people were looking for, but actually, it's. God, you've got to think about a lot, haven't you? But there was a lot of really good information yeah, yeah. in there. I, I absolutely agree. And I have to say, something I felt particularly strongly about was connecting with your interviewer and like making sure they know who you are. And that's a, that's a difficult task to begin with. But I also realised that many, many, many of the unsuccessful interviews I had was because I couldn't build any any type of connection with my interviewer like they weren't engaging or they were bored by what I was saying or yeah I, I felt you know, the same to me that was really interesting to kind of retrospectively go oh yeah I didn't actually build a connection I mean in in the job I have now I had I had a really great interview where we did all actually connect and we did talk about things that were perhaps even outside the interview questions because they actually got a glimpse of me and obviously that made a difference because I have that job now <laughs> so you know it's to me, that was a really, really good point, And I don't think I would have come to that conclusion without listening to Edward, actually. No, I think he sounds both scary and really lovely to be interviewed by because he just <laughs> yes, wants you to have, do well. I know, I have, I have mixed feelings. <laughs> I, know. I bet also he gives really comforting hugs. <laughs> or at least a really cracking good cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs>
I think the thing that I found interesting was the advice to be very selective about what jobs you apply for. Um, obviously, that's going to increase your chances of getting a job when you do apply for a job if you make sure that you're a really good fit for the job and you're not trying to kind of force yourself into something where you don't really have the right skills or experience. But on the other hand, it's really hard to do that when the market isn't exactly flooded with jobs. And it is very tempting to just apply for everything going because you're so desperate to get a job. Yeah, I have there. to say that might be one of the things I actually didn't agree with um from the interview i think because i have seen an awful lot of my i have been through the period of apply to everything with conservation or collections in the title and i feel i actually learned an awful lot by going through that process even if and i know this is of course annoying to the people who have to read through everything and go why is this person even <laughs> sent an application she's not the right fit but i think it's it's an important pra- it's important to practice even if it's just to go through the pain of doing it and realize that you're not going to die i think that's i actually found i actually think that's quite an important thing to do and you you never know if you get a job it might not be what you thought it was or you might think that you're actually you are a good fit when you didn't think you were to begin with so i i don't i think it's it's good practice and it's also i don't think necessarily you want to close doors but i suppose that depends on the individual also it makes me think of two things one is um, for example, if you're on Job Seekers Allowance, you're not allowed to pick and choose. Yeah, <laughs> you have to apply to literally everything, just to show that you're really making an effort. Now, sure, you can lie about that, but that's inadvisable. <laughs> Don't do that. And another thing it made me think of was that sometimes you need to try applying for different jobs, and sometimes realizing that some are not for you, and you can only gain that experience and that knowledge of yourself by actually going for some jobs that, as it turns out wouldn't be a great fit for you which sounds bizarre but it's just kind of trial and error because it it might be that you think um being a heritage officer would be really really awesome as a kind of you know stepping stone towards going into more conservation-based things and as it turns out that isn't the role at all for you but you couldn't have known that until you got to uh, perhaps you know being selected for interview and seeing the job kind of more in person you know so sometimes it is actually part of the learning experience to just kind of screw up <laughs> or like that's how or, i feel you need or, to fail or, sometimes yeah, or, and or realize that it's okay apply for the wrong job yeah that sort of thing i think also um museums often want people who have already got exactly the right experience for that job who've essentially already done that job um obviously that's going to be the easiest thing for a museum to integrate somebody who's already knows all aspects of that kind of material or whatever or has done exactly that kind of work before but sometimes you're in the position of applying for a job where your experience isn't a very very close fit but you think you could do the job if you were given a chance because you've got other kind of transferable skills Um, and so you've worked on one type of organic material but not another type but you know that that's giving you the right kind of skills and experience and decision-making ability to apply it to another kind of organic material and essentially it would just be a case of getting to grips with a different kind of collection and so on and that can be quite frustrating when you're trying to show that in an interview I think there is very much an art to making the most of what you bring to the table Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's an advantage for museums you know because if you can get up to speed on the type of collection they have but you've also come from a different type of collection then you'll be bringing a different perspective yeah absolutely. absolutely yeah 
The, another thing that I'd say um, about it is, obviously, I think we can all agree on the root of the problem that we're facing here in conservation, and that's the lack of funding um, from further further along than just when it reaches museums. Um, but I would say that I I don't think we should think of it as in terms of the problems here to stay. I don't think it has to be. I think we, we can do more as museums to make um, more of a noise, particularly as conservators, um, about what we need. And that might mean, yes, we are just annoying. <laughs> um, but I think it's an import- we've got an important argument to make in that respect and if we can't carry on um doing our jobs the way we need to do them then that's that's an important thing to to say we we shouldn't just keep stumbling along and and you know limping along um trying to do our jobs properly without the proper resources i also think we can use what we do have more effectively to target the shortfall um in what we provide for people um whether that's really targeting the things that people need in um, short-term project jobs and making sure that people leave with more experience than they came in with. I I think this was a a really nice interview and it was a really good insight into what employers are looking for. There's a new resource out there for emerging museum professionals in the UK. They are called UK EMP Hub and there will be a link in the show notes for it. Uh, It's a new network, it's regional, they have regional groups all over the UK uh, and it's basically for anyone who's an emerging professional within the museum and heritage profession. So obviously it's not conservation only but it's still a network uh, and a support structure uh, that could be really valuable uh, to anyone out there. Dear Jane, I'm going to university next year for conservation studies in the UK. What's the thing or tool I absolutely must bring with me from home? Please don't say old toothbrushes. Signed, student-to-be. So, my very first question at the C-word agony ant is about what you should bring if you start a conservation degree in the United Kingdom. Well, the serious part of the answer is if you're paying fees for a degree in the United Kingdom, you should get all the things that you really need provided. So you should get PPE, things like lab coats and gloves and any other safety equipment like dust masks that should come with the degree. You probably will also get a toolkit with all the sort of useful things that you might need for the degree. But there may be a few tools that you've used in your career in your, um, with, with hobby craft or in volunteering that you absolutely adore. And if you like them, bring them. They're not going to be too big. The thing that you probably will need It's brushes. Brushes are just a personal thing. You're going to want some little pointy ones, some flat scrapey ones, maybe some silicone ones, soft ones, hard ones, good quality ones, bristly ones. Even ruined brushes can be quite useful for stippling. Brushes are something that I don't think you can share with other people. So any that you've got, even bring them. If not, get out and buy a really expensive, fine set, zero, zero, that sort of size, and a cheap set. If you can find some without any paint on the handle, all the better. So, what else should you bring? You said you're coming to the UK. Let's look at your waterproofs. And when I say waterproofs, look at the label. 
If it says showerproof, that's not going to cut it. Unless it's worn by mountain climbers or Scandinavians, it's not going to be enough for the UK weather. So make sure you prepare for that. Books? Well, you probably don't need many books. You'll find some books that you enjoy and that you refer to a lot when you get to the course. But one thing you can certainly do is join a professional organisation. So IIC for students around the world and then your national icon in the UK, AIC, if you're in America. The idea of joining these things is that you will get access to their journals and you will use that journal all the time in your essays and your research and in planning your treatments. So the money that you spend on that is a portable thing that you can bring instead of a book. The last thing you mentioned was please don't tell me to bring a toothbrush. And I have to say, you probably will find the labs in UK are quite small and you're sitting quite close to your fellow students. So I would encourage you to bring at least just the one toothbrush. Over and out. And now for some comments, questions and corrections. As always, we love hearing from you. So please do write in if you have anything uh, that you'd like to you know, speak your mind. Uh, do that thing that, you know, where you type furiously and send us a comment. We love that sort of thing. Anyway, I've got a few this time. David writes in and I will read out what he says. A topic which I'd love to see, uh, see you discuss in one of your chats is almost all temporary exhibitions. And I'm thinking mostly of the big ones like the, the BM and the VNA. There's an acknowledge board at the end. Do you ever see the name of a conservator? <laughs> no! Even though conservators <laughs> were central to the exhibition, even ultra central when it comes to the instance of costume exhibitions. Vital. Yes. There is sometimes mention of museum services, but nothing as specific as the word conservation, let alone the names of conservators involved. Of course, museums may excuse themselves by saying there are loads of uh, services involved, like carpenters, cleaners, electricians, etc. But I don't think this is good enough. When they do list all curatorial staff involved, uh, as well as many external contractors. This has irked me for many years. Why not list everyone concerned with that particular exhibition? Just like the whole team is listed at the end of every film and the whole company in the programme for every theatre performance. I think it needs airing. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I have been in... And acknowledge I've been in the acknowledgements of a catalogue, but oh. never on the board. And <laughs> I not consistently, I have to say. I have been on one board. Oh, I'm very proud of this. I didn't say I was a conservative, but my name was there. Well, yeah, I guess. So my name has been mm, on way. one board. One board. How about you, Christina? Have you been on a board? Yeah, I, th- I think I've I've been on boards, but um, these are quite small museums i guess so oh yeah, this, 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 this was very small or gallery by the way big so. Museums, yeah. so yeah i guess so, yeah i think i think that's a fair point <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah absolutely i suppose it's we're the this potentially slightly grubby behind the scenes people yeah but at the same time we are entirely central to the exhibition well, and if it wasn't for us it wouldn't be <laughs> Or at least it wouldn't be happening if we were uh, apartment was actually um, <laughs> complying to all of the behaviours, <laughs> all of the collection standards, all of the collection all standards. <laughs> uh, yes, no, no, it's it's a very good point, um, and especially isn't it especially shameful that the big museums don't do it? You know, the people who you know kind of boast about having great conservation departments, but why don't you name them? I can understand that the board might be quite long, as it were. <laughs> But you know it how many screen like you do for um, for <laughs> yeah, films, exactly, right? How how many conservation staff could it possibly be? Like for the really big ones, five at the most. 
Yeah. That's not very many names yeah, to put on a board. Names, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting one. Names yeah. on boards. Names on boards, people. Come on. Make it happen. Uh, Craig writes in, I'd like to hear a discussion uh, on the trend that museum directors are now functioning as bean counters and fundraisers, not defenders of cultural heritage. That one made me laugh so much. <laughs> bean counters. <laughs> um, I don't think as such there's anything wrong with, fun, uh, with um, museum directors being fundraisers because I think we need to champion the fact that these things aren't free to run and we need money for them and people should give us more money for them but uh, i do take i do i do actually take the point that yeah they're they're not really standing up for cultural heritage as such anymore i think it varies hugely depending on the director i think and it's interesting something that i find very interesting about museums in general is that the direction of the museum can be so dependent on on one person on one person and what that one person's priorities are yeah because it's you know this we will all be dead when people are still looking at some of the objects that we've worked on hope you know if if if, if the museums that we've worked on operating the way that the we all want them to we will all be gone by when people are still looking at the objects that we've been involved with so the idea that one person one sort of transient situation can have such a huge impact on attitudes to conservation and attitudes to funding and exhibition spaces and storage spaces it is really huge it's, yeah, it's I find it a bit unbelievable, really. Yeah, it, it's true. Anyway, it, it was an interesting point. And someone with the username Thread Cookie says, "Any thoughts on the possibility that there are simply more conservatives than there are jobs?" <laughs> oh, contentious! I've heard this before. Actually, I've heard people saying this before. Oh, it depends on how you look at it, isn't it? Because is that um, how, how do we define jobs? Is that jobs that are current or jobs that are out on the market? Because they are very different things. And is that yeah? Jobs and that... is it full time equivalent or yeah? Yeah, exactly. Because... And is the, are, are these jobs that are needed? Because <laughs> if every single conservator in the country is wildly overworked and being given far more to do than they can possibly do, hey, that's a good point. Then that just means that there isn't the funding yeah. for the jobs. Yeah, it doesn't mean that point. there aren't the jobs. The jobs are there. Yeah, like the work it's still just needs to be done. But yeah, exactly, it's yeah. not like the heritage is going away, unless of course you go through the disposal system. <laughs> Shut up. Um, the work isn't going. The potential for the work, the need for the work, isn't going away. Yeah. So that's it's actually just that. So actually, the funding is the problem. It's the funding. It's, it's yeah. not necessarily that. Yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose uh, we've been cutting corners by saying the jobs. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, there are only so many jobs advertised, of course. Um, but without actually having any clear statistics on like how many conservators there are that are currently employed and that are unemployed yeah. uh, and how many jobs are currently filled, currently vacant, uh, currently being created. Yeah. We can't actually say, which is a bit of I a shame. I think it would be easy to be, uh, as an unemployed emerging professional conservator, super eager and keen to work extremely hard as a conservator. I think it'd be quite galling to hear that kind of that kind of attitude of of course there are jobs we see them every day and there <laughs> yes. are people for them there's just no money <laughs> yeah yeah so i yeah so i guess it's not a clear cut it's not a clear cut answer yeah uh, well there are obviously jobs uh so just not enough funding to actually have the amount of jobs that are actually required yeah to look after cultural heritage and is this just semantics oh we're getting very philosophical oh, now God. yeah uh, anyway thank you so much for writing in uh, as always we love hearing from you please do write in you can find us on twitter and by email and all that good stuff
You may remember Marie Jordan, who joined us as a special guest host last time we talked about emerging professionals. Well, she's uh, written in with her amazing data, which is she was analyzing her job applications over three years. I do believe this is in America, all of it, I think. And in 48 applications, she got four interviews. Her ratio of applications to interviews were in 2015, one to three. In 2016 and 2017, it was 1 to 15. 29 of 48 places provided immediate acknowledgement of application received. To me, that's a shockingly low number because that's literally sending an automated email saying thanks for submitting an application. Isn't that kind of astonishing that there's 29 out of 48? Yeah. How hard is it to set up a... Yeah. We've complained about this before. I know. I mean, it's it's just a bit sad to see the, the actual stats on that. Yeah. 12 out of 48 places provided a follow-up when the position was filled, whether I was interviewed or not, she writes. Wow. Uh, I mean, I don't know how I feel about this because I don't know how much I want an email saying, hey, we found someone and it's not you. But at the same time, that means that you stop thinking about that application. You can mentally file it away under not successful. So is that if you have interviewed? No, no, whether I was interviewed or not. So it's any kind of acknowledgement that the position has been filled. So that's kind of interesting because that's that's a very low number, 12 places. I don't know if I've encountered that before. I've Mm -hmm. heard your application was not successful and your interview was not successful. I have not heard... But I think, but I think that's kind of the same thing. I right. think I'm bundling them in as the same thing. Oh, I see. That it's any kind of sorry you weren't successful. Oh, okay. That's an extremely low number. Yeah, because twelve out of forty-eight. That's not great. Come on, people, we can do better. That's ridiculously low. Yeah. One place did not follow up after an interview. Ugh, hate that. Well, you can't even say no thanks. Most follow-ups occurred within four to six weeks of me submitting an application she writes oh that's quite a long time i i mean i suppose this this may well be but recruitment does take a while yeah and it may well be across loads of different types of sizes of museums like oh yeah i understand for example when the bm says if you haven't heard back from us within six Mm. weeks you've not been successful and loads uh, of people the, make that blanket statement now just so yeah, they don't have to deal yeah, with people exactly but then on the other hand i'd say if you're the bm you probably have the resources to send out an automatic <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is that one place followed up six months after my submission second runner-up was four months later and third one was three months later now six months after an application <laughs> say you were not successful can you That's... imagine being invited to interview and be like i have no idea what that job was <laughs> totally forgotten the seasons have changed six months that's a long time i i thought it was bad because i think i had seven or eight weeks for an after an interview once where they still very much said are we still deliberating oh my god (laughs) how do they even remember what was said in the interview that's a good question Uh, of the follow-ups a regular theme was a comment on the size of the pool of applicants with many places noting they uh, that they got way more than they'd expected. Often this was written in a slightly shell-shocked tone. Of particular note, one individual noted they had received over 150 applications for a position that was open, i.e. advertised, for 30 days. This is for a relatively obscure museum with an interesting but unremarkable collection in a small town. 
Yeah, I, I bet they were shocked. <laughs> 150 people. But that people. doesn't sound like very many to me. I think given the number of people who want jobs, that just doesn't sound very, very much at all. Yeah, I suppose. But you do have to sift through them and maybe they were thinking, I don't know what a realistic expectation is though. What is a realistic expectation That's of how true. many applications you get? I don't yeah. know. I generally don't know because I've not been in a position to advertise anything. So I guess if you I have. Yeah. Please give us your thoughts. <laughs> How many applications do you get for a job? A job in London, outside London, like anything. How many applications do you get? Well, you know, submit submit an answer anonymously. You don't have to tell me where you're from. Uh, but anyway, another individual wrote in a follow-up email, I acknowledge that this field is one where there are not enough opportunities for talented individuals to find their next step. Well, I guess that's nice. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't help, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's nice to feel like someone understands the attitude with which you're reading their email. Yes. (laughs) I realize that you. I realize that you really wanted this job. Yeah. I really wish that you are now crying because you have no money. Yeah. And no job prospects. (laughs) Oh, man. Thanks for sharing this, Marie. This is really interesting data that you've collected. And I'm glad that there are that some of us are nerdy enough to collect that data. Patreon shout out. Welcome to our latest patron, Mark. If you want to join us on Patreon and get loads of, you know, behind the scenes glimpses and extra long episodes and all that stuff, then do go to patreon.com slash the C word and join us. Thanks very much. And welcome, Mark. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about modern materials. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at The C Word Podcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Misik, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. <laughs> <laughs>